good to see everyone back tonight. I know the weather outside is not very uh, enjoyable, but we're glad to have a great place to assemble together to worship God and to be able to study a portion of His Word. On the first Sunday evenings of each month, we take time to answer questions which various ones of you have submitted. And let me encourage you as you study along through your Bibles and you come across a question, something that maybe uh, concerns you, something that you don't understand, uh, please take some time, write that down, and we'll try to address those questions. Uh, some of them are very thoughtful, and I appreciate getting those kinds of questions. Because you really, questions are valuable. Uh, when you start looking, there is a pursuit of truth. Uh, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 34, you remember the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? You have a man who's interested in knowing what passage refers to, to whom does it refer. Or you can go to other passages where people are pushed to think, what does this really mean? In Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46, Jesus has encountered the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he then his son? Well, that's a question that made them think. How could David's descendant be called Lord by David himself. Obviously, that's because Jesus was the Christ. Some of our questions are doctrinal, some of them are textual, and some of them are practical. We have three questions tonight, and we're going to go ahead and begin with the first one. And the first one is, please explain Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 and the judging of the twelve tribes. Uh, Brother David read that just a few moments ago, but I want to put it back on the screen for us to look at. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, this passage has been debated, and if you pick up commentaries, you'll read one, and it'll say one thing. You'll pick up a second, and it may say something else, and you pick up a third, and it may even have a third view. But there are three main views that are taken in our world today. The first one is that of the premillennials. They believe that the Lord will return to this earth and reign on the earth in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And they believe that Christians will also rule with the Lord and specifically that the 12 apostles will be over the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's their view of this passage that it refers to that ruling. A second view, which is probably more common among those who don't believe in premillennials, is the heavenly reward where that... Jesus is using this as sort of a figure of speech of ruling with him and that in eternity, as the Lord is now somehow ruling in heaven, that the apostles will be given places of prominence, places of rule in the Lord.
Lord's eternal kingdom. But the third view is that it refers to our present age, to the age of the kingdom, the age of the church, when the Lord would be announcing what would take place among the apostles. Now, what we need to do is start exploring Scripture and see to which these refers. The word regeneration is found in the Bible twice. Found here and also Titus chapter 3 verse 5. And there Paul writes Titus, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Now listen carefully. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing of generation to which he refers is baptism. It is that new birth that Jesus spoke about to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But let me just explain the word. The word is palingenesia, which the word palin means again. And the word genesis means birth or literally born again or regenerated. That's the idea. It parallels the word restitution or restoration found in Acts 3 verse 1. Just look at that passage very carefully here. Whom heaven must receive into the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Now someone might say, well, he says there, the restoration of all things. I'm thinking about when the Lord comes again. But notice he says, which God has spoken by the mouth of his prophets. What did the prophets talk about? Second Peter or First Peter chapter one, he says, of which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And he goes on to say, These things have been announced to you by the holy apostles and prophets. So the restoration of all things that has been referred to is what Peter is saying the Lord is doing. It parallels Acts 2.38 where he says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. But to me, the key passage that interprets it, that explains it, helps us all to understand it is Luke chapter 22. Now, Here's the way I generally will talk to people. They'll say, I'm reading through Matthew, and I'm having a tough time understanding what Matthew's talking about. And I will generally explain, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. Luke writes to a Gentile audience. And then I'll look and say, which one are you? Are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? Well, I'm a Gentile. Well, then Luke will say it in a way you'll understand it better. When Matthew's writing, he's writing so the Jewish mind attaches Old Testament passages to this. Let me give you a real good illustration. When you're reading and studying Matthew 24 and 25 with regards to the destruction of Jerusalem, a lot of people read that and they'll say, oh, he's talking about when the Lord's going to come back in a, a millennial kingdom. But notice carefully verse 15 of chapter 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand. Someone says the abomination of desolation. Daniel prophesied about that. But you go to Luke's parallel. In Luke 21 verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies 
know that its desolation is near. Oh, I can understand that. When the armies surround the city of Jerusalem, it's about to be destroyed. Of course, if a person goes back to Daniel and they understand the prophecy of the abomination of desolation, they get the picture that God's going to allow the city to be destroyed. Well, let's look at the parallel passage here in Luke 22, verses 24 through verse 30. Now, there was a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise great authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs is he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. Now, someone says, well, I don't know where he's going with this. What the Lord's trying to do is to talk to those 12 men who are having an argument among themselves, well, which one of us is going to be the greatest of the apostles? Which one of us are going to sit at the Lord's right hand and left hand? James and John have already uh, jockeyed for a position for that. Their mother had asked. But as you continue on, but you are those who have continued with me through my trials or in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. Now listen to that carefully. My father has bestowed a kingdom upon me, and I'm bestowing one upon you, that you may eat and drink in my table, in my kingdom, and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What the Lord is saying to those twelve apostles are, just like the father gave me a kingdom, I'm giving that kingdom into your hands. And you are going to sit and judge. You're going to render judgment. Do you remember Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19? I say unto you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What is it when the twelve apostles judge the twelve tribes of Israel? That's when they are carrying out the Lord's command to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That's when they are binding and loosing what the Holy Spirit has directed them to do. That's them judging the twelve tribes of Israel rather than some event in the future. Question number two. This was asked by one of our little young ladies. Were there slaves back in Bible times? If so, why didn't God stop slavery? The answer is yes. There has been slavery almost continuously throughout recorded history. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at biblical history or secular history. One of the earliest examples, not the earliest, but one of the earliest examples is that of Joseph. You remember Joseph's brothers took him, threw him in a pit. Afterwards, some Midianite traders came along and they sold him. We read that in verse 28 and verse 36. The Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up out and lifted him out of the pit, 
sold him to the Ishmaelite for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. You see, what occurs here is there's a, a taking of a person, selling them, and now that person owns them. When those traders get to Egypt, it says the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So Joseph is now is a slave. He's not his own. Somebody owns him. And so he is being sold as a slave. But yet when we come to the text, for instance, like in Exodus 21, God regulated slavery among the Israelites. In other words, it wasn't just a, a slavery where you could treat somebody however you wanted to. Jesus said, or excuse me, God said through Moses, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free and pay nothing. That's pretty plain. You didn't own a man for life. For six years you would own him, and then seventh year he goes free. If he comes in by himself, he goes out by himself. If he comes in married, his wife will go out with him. But then it says, if his master has given him a wife and she has born sons or daughters, the wife and her children should be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges, he shall bring, also bring him to the door, to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, he shall serve him forever. So you see, it was even a choice for a man beyond the seven years to say, I'm willing to serve. But you have to understand there was slavery that was permitted among other nations where a person could become a permanent slave. In Leviticus 25, verse 39, And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve until the year of Jubilee. Year of Jubilee is every 50 years. So here's somebody, they become poor, they, they sell themselves, but he said, you don't treat him like a slave, you treat him like you would a hired servant. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and he, he shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, and they shall be, not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor. Don't be harsh. Don't be unkind. Treat them with respect. Now you pick up verse 44. And as for you, your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy and sell female slaves. Ah, so it's different with regards to one who might be a brother and one who might be from another nation. And he goes on to say in verse 46, you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession they shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, again, you don't rule over them with rigor. For those who were placed in that position, they are slaves. There were some regulations in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, when Paul is writing to the church there at Ephesus, which had many slaves, he says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, 
with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. So he's saying, I want you to be good slaves. When Peter's writing in 1 Peter chapter 2, talking about the kind of lifestyle that a, a Christian ought to live, and he says, be submissive to your masters, and not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. When somebody mistreats you, stand up and do what is right. Now, slavery in the Bible, though, was not based on race. You see, many people today think when we talk about slavery in biblical times, they think, well, okay, it was the black man who was oppressed, but that's not necessarily the case. Generally, slavery in the Bible was based on two things. Number one was poverty. You became so poor you couldn't pay your bills, then you didn't take bankruptcy. You sold yourself into slavery. We can see that plainly in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. I referred to that in my lesson this morning. Certain women of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two sons to be his slaves. We owe money. We can't pay it. What are we going to do? My two sons are going to become slaves of his. That's when he multiplied the oil. Or Proverbs 22.7, a very important passage. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a servant to the lender. Many of those who became slaves did so because they didn't have money and they sold themselves. The second reason why people became slaves is because they were conquered by a foreign nation. In Joshua chapter 9, talking about the Gibeonites, he said uh, there to these people who had lied to him, said, okay, you're going to become slaves. Verse 23, none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. You're going, you're going to serve. You're going to carry water. You're going to cut wood. But you're going to be slaves. Perhaps one of the most uh, obvious instances of this is in the book of Daniel. How Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been taken captive by the Babylonians, they've been carried captive back to Babylon to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. That's what they did when people were conquered. They made slaves out of them and out of their children. Well, why didn't God stop this? God does not stop every instance of bad behavior in this world. I'm going to tell you, I've offered a prayer and I've, I've been just deeply moved by what occurred in El Paso and Dayton. It's just, there's, there's a suffering that's just terrible for the lives of all these people who were lost because someone acted evil. God doesn't stop all the evil in the world. And someone would say, well, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? Because man has to suffer to learn. The only time things change is when we suffer and we say, I'm not going to put up with that anymore. You know, if you do something and it hurts, then you quit doing that. And we have to realize that, that God has pain to be associated with evil. And uh, he doesn't stop at all. Question number three. What was the character of Joseph in the book of Genesis? Specifically, was he an admirable character or was he an absorbed, spoiled child? Let me give you an 
discussion that was found in a book called Poetics of the Biblical Narrative by Strandberg, or Sternberg. He called Joseph a spoiled brat, a talebearer, and a braggart. Was that who Joseph was? For just a moment, let me explore this with you real quickly. All the characters in the Bible are beset with weakness, including these major biblical characters. Whether it's an Elijah or Elisha, whether it's an Abraham or a Moses, every character in the Bible is subject to the same kind of weakness as everyone else is. There's none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3, verses 9 and 10. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23. Joseph did as well. So he certainly was not perfect. We do know that he had some areas of conflict with his brothers. Specifically, Genesis 37, 2, you have the, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. They're out in the field. They're, they're tending the flocks. Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. In doing so, was he a tattletale? Was he a man who wasn't doing right? Or was he actually doing what he was supposed to do? And that is to report on what was taking place. He was favored by Joseph and even given a coat of many colors. Verses 3 and 4 describe the uh, preferential treatment that was given to Joseph. Joseph was made a coat of many colors because... He was the son of his old age. And when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. The preferential treatment brought about a great amount of conflict. But perhaps the thing that was the salt in the wound for them was the way that Joseph interpreted dreams, in fact, his own dreams, Verses 5 through 11, it says, Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hate him even more. And he said to them, Please hear the dream which I have dreamed. He talks about the sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. They hated him more even for that. And then he talked about the stars and how the stars here bowed down to him. In verse uh, 10, So he told it to his father and his brothers, but his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. You see, Jacob knew that there was more to this. These were divinely revealed dreams. And when you think about that, in each of these cases, Joseph's simply doing what Joseph is supposed to do. Joseph is accepting what treatment that was extended to him and even accepting the visions that God gave him. When you look at the character of Joseph, it's most revealed in what happened after his father died. In chapter 45, verses 7 and 8, he tells his brothers that God sent me before you to preserve a prosperity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. God sent me to do this for you. I don't hold any grudge. God put me here. Chapter 50, verses 15 and 19. 
brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil that which we did to him. How does he respond? Do not be afraid. Um, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Joseph had a respect for them. But perhaps the greatest compliment that you can pay for Joseph was that he was a type of Christ. When you start looking, both were destined to be deliverers by God. Both were rejected by their own families. Joseph by his brothers, Jesus by his brothers, John chapter 7. They were both beloved by their father. Both were sold for a price. Both became rulers. Both were charged with two others. And when you think about Jesus between the two thieves and those of the other servants that Joseph served with, if charges are leveled at Joseph for his character, what would that say about Christ? You certainly would not use the same description of him that some had used of Joseph. We know that Jesus did not sin. First John chapter 2 and verse 22, who did no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. First John 3, 5, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. So what's the big picture? I think the character of Joseph was one of admiration in the book of Genesis because of the life that he lived. There are so many valuable questions, but there's none more important than the simple, basic one that says, what must I do to be saved? You know, you can talk about the complex ones, the ones that have all the meanings and in, you know the various ways that you can look at it, but when you come to that question, what must I do to be saved? Whether it's Acts 16, verse 30, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your house. Or whether it's the one asked in Acts chapter 2, men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. But there's also, Lord, what would you have me to do? You know, what must I do to be saved? Now I'm a child of God. Lord, what would you have me to do? The kind of good works that go along with being a faithful Christian. The kind of dedication that says, I want to be about the Lord's business. Those are the kind of things that the Lord would have me to do. Well, how will you answer on Judgment Day? When the Lord looks at you and asks you, what have you done? And how will he answer you? We're going to sing the song, There's Power in the Blood. And if you need to become a Christian or you need to have prayers, please come as together we stand and sing.